Welcome. This is the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. I'm here with Alex Youngblood. Alex from Virginia Beach. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm in the Virginia Beach area, area. namely right. Chesapeake. But uh, okay. you can say I'm from Virginia Beach. That's fine. Is that pretty? <laughs> is that like saying you're from the from the Hamptons or something? I'm from the Hampton Roads area, which uh, encompasses seven different cities around here, including Williamsburg and Virginia Beach. There's okay. a lot of there's different names for this area. You got the Tidewater area, Hampton Roads, the Norfolk general demographic. It's it's crazy. Nice, but it's a nice area. Oh, it's beautiful. I love it. You got to stop sending me pictures of your swimming pool because it's making me <laughs> jealous. <laughs> hey, I saw a picture of your waterfall that you put <laughs> in your yard, and I was like, holy cow, look at that. And then and I saw your little kids in there swimming around. I was like, why didn't you just put a pool in? <laughs> my, so I, you know. my kids think this waterfall is a swimming pool, and so they're... Hey. Yeah, why not letting them play in it? The the bottom part of it is probably ten feet wide, uh, yeah. six seven feet wide, like a oval, and it's about three four feet deep. So it's enough for the okay. kids to get in there and swim with the frogs. <laughs> we just <laughs> we just got it uh, built. I won't tell you how much it costs, but no. Uh, it's really nice, man. It's really, really nice waterfall. It's probably how long would you think it is? It's uh probably no more than that. Probably thirty, forty feet long. Because wow. we have we have this circle drive in front of our house and it kind of goes downhill. So there's about four or five waterfalls in this thing. And it comes down and it's uh it's really nice. It's so cool to just go outside and hear the water falling. You can just hear the trickling. Yeah. So we want to build a pool next, a real pool for our kids to swim in, and we're talking about that. We're looking at price ranges anywhere from thirty to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So that's nuts. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> even even thirty thousand is nuts. But yeah, that's uh, that's what's going on here. Um, I had a client. Alex did his first deal today. I saw it in a testimonial on my Facebook Sweet. page. Two thousand dollars, right? Hey. Now, do you remember your first deal? Oh, yes. My first successful deal or my first deal? <laughs> your first deal. Yes, it ended me up in court. Well, let's not talk about that. Let's change okay. the subject. <laughs> <laughs> Look <But> over there. <laughs> I, I, I remember my first deal was a good deal. Um, your first deal ended up in court. It was like, it, did it end up it in court? It was a lease option deal. Oh, Take my goodness. You know, and we're going to be talking about lease options today. Oh, okay. That might be a good segue into our introduction. I was, I was on the other side of the, the, the equation. I was the one that the guy assigned the lease option to. Oh, really? So yeah. Were, were you taking the deal on as an investor or as you're wanting to live in it? Oh, no, as an, as an investor. But I really didn't even have the money that I had to, that I gave him. It was $1,500 I gave him so I could have this deal um, in which I inherited a tenant that was uh, that had bankruptcies and 
Um, the property was, uh, the contract was set to buy the property for, oh, 60,000, I believe. And this tenant was going to buy the property for 87 or something. So I can hear, I I can hear what's going on right now in Scott's head. What's that? (laughs) You'd never do lease options on low end homes. Yeah. Yes. How did you guess that? Uh Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> so I'm sure I'm sure we'll get to that lesson. But yeah, I did that. And crazy thing is, it got to the closing table where this girl was actually going to close out on it. I think her mom had refinanced her house and gave her some money to uh, potentially buy it. And she goes and looks at the paperwork and she says, oh, this isn't right. This isn't right. I'm like, uh, okay. <laughs> She's, you know, she said, the lot on the back of the house is not included in this legal description. Oh. And wouldn't you know it, she was right. She actually, and, I, and, I, and the reason why I knew this or, or figured what her process out was was because the next door neighbor, great person that he was, went ahead and um, was offering to buy the lot behind the house after she bought it. Okay, all right. So, and this, sure enough, that, that property was not on the legal description and we had to go back and try to see why it got foreclosed on and why it felt and why it never came through in the foreclosure. And it was my first deal. It was just excellent. (laughs) (laughs) And, and the way I got out of the deal was traditional wholesaling. I, I, I went ahead and found a buyer to, uh, and we double closed on it and I, you know, and that's how I got out of it. But in the meantime, while all this was going down, I was, I was responsible for those payments. So, (laughs) okay, there you go. Well, we were talking about your first deal and I remember, I know, but like I was thinking of it in a positive way. Well, the next, it was a negative beginning and it ended positively because okay. I, you know, I got $15,000 or whatever it was after I wholesaled it. Oh, you still made 15 grand on it. Yeah. Somewhat. All right. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> so by back to this client, uh, Phil just did his first deal, two grand, not, not very much. He even admitted on his Facebook page, it's not very much, but man, what a huge win. That's $2,000. You could go out have. and have a really nice dinner for $2,000. <laughs> you know? I, I would hope you wouldn't blow that all in one nice dinner. You, you have not done that before, Joe, have no, you? No, 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 no. Okay. All right. But uh, so cool. So, you know, big shout out to all you guys that have just done your first deal. I mean, that is so cool. Keep that check. I mean, like after you deposit it, keep a, keep a copy of the check and uh, – Put it on your wall and let it remind you. Sometimes the second deal is the hardest. And uh, it's strange how that plays out. But anyway, guys, uh, this is the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. Go to realestateinvestingmastery.com and check out the show notes. We're going to be interviewing Scott Ulmer here from Florida. And we're going to be giving a lot of good uh, information in this podcast. Probably going to give out some links, some information. You want to go to our show notes to get that. Go to realestateinvestingmastery.com. And I want to ask you guys also to leave a review in iTunes. If you like this show, leave us a review in iTunes. I'm going to open it up right now and read you the last few um, reviews that we've had because we haven't been asking people very often for reviews. And it's funny, um, we've been around for five, six years, Alex, doing this show. And 
some of these guys, like we are at the. Sometimes you look at the rankings, the rating, the um, what do you call it? The um, rankings, I guess, right in iTunes for the word real estate investing. And there's these schmucks. I'm just kidding. Who have only been doing podcasting for a little while, who are like <laughs> way at the top, and we're like ten down. I was like, what is going on with this? So right now, yeah, we. Are, I'm not complaining. I'm whining. But we're way down. We need more reviews. So, yeah, that's my whole point. We have 284 five-star reviews, which is awesome. And I'm going to read you the last one here. Great podcast. Fantastic. This is from Steve. In fact, this is from Steve Batula. But Batula, I believe. I'm interviewing him on – he's going to interview me on his podcast later this evening. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Fantastic podcast. Informative, interesting, and entertaining. Five stars. This is from Jason Rusk. Thanks for sharing your knowledge. Wonderful insight. Um, I'm happy to be learning from you guys. Time to make things happen. Sweet. And then Castro Me says, awesome podcast, five stars. This is an incredible barrage of the most creative and current simplistically put real estate strategies I've ever heard. Keep inspiring and the great content coming. Bravo, Castro. Perfect. One more here, okay? From uh, RE Podcast Junkie. Alex and Joe are two guys you'd love to sit down with and talk for hours. Their prosperity attitude is so refreshing as they seem to share everything about their business and personal lives. Joe is into many different business partnerships. He'll soon be offering weekend mastermind trips in his camper. <laughs> oh, my. Thoroughly enjoyable and educational. <laughs> <laughs> right on. All right, all right, all right. So leave us a review on iTunes, guys, if you like the show. Even if you don't, leave us a review on iTunes, and we'd appreciate that. We've got to climb back, back up the rankings. I don't know. I know, Alex. We have way more listeners than these guys who are at the top of the list. Oh yeah, we just need to get some more reviews. So let's. All right, people. All right. If you are liking what you hear, give us a good review. Yes, thank you. So we have Scott Omer, Alex, on the line today. Awesome. I heard about Scott from a friend and a client. Uh, we were talking about lease options, and he said, have you ever heard of this guy, Scott, down in Florida? He's doing a lot of deals. And he actually used to work with Ron Legrand. And I thought, oh, interesting. And so I uh, looked him up, found his website, gave him a call and talked to him, and I was really impressed with what he's doing with lease options. Lease, our, lease options have been, my, uh, been close to my heart ever since I started doing them full-time in 2009 and started making full-time income. I've told my story a hundred times. I started flipping lease options in 2009, and I was making more money doing that than I was. I was making more money doing that part-time than I was in my full-time job, and that's what allowed me to quit. And I did. I flipped hundreds of lease options over the years, and it's a great, great business. And I think as the market starts to peak and maybe come down in some parts of the country, Lease options are an even more attractive. They work in any kind of market condition, but they're an even more attractive uh, tool in your tool belt as the markets start flattening off and maybe even going down a little bit. So, Scott, how are you? I'm doing great, Joe. How about yourself? Very good. Good. Your website is Little Pink Houses of America. That's the name of your company, actually, right? It is. It is. Thank you. So let's ask the question everybody's thinking. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> why why little pink houses of america what is that 
Yeah, and I always like to say how many people laugh when they heard it, right? But uh, what's really been kind of crazy, first of all, thank you for having me on. I'm certainly honored to be uh, be a guest here, so I want to make sure I say that right up front. Um, little Pink Cows of America is a, um, it's a name that uh, kind of has a little bit of a backstory, kind of uh, give you the Reader's Digest version. You know, the, the traditional colors in real estate investing, you know, the we buy house signs you see are typically canary yellow and, and black. And yeah. uh, my assistant at the time, as we were kind of formulating our uh, strategy and kind of the 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 merits for you know what this company was going to be. She came in one day and says, "I, I I've got it. I, I know what our color, our theme color is going to be." And I said, "What's that?" And she says, "Pink." And uh, I said, "Pink, huh?" And of course, imagine my uh, to my much to my chagrin, not not quite a color I had anticipated or envisioned, but uh, the logic was really sound. And she said, "You know, look, the the real decision makers in the house are going to be the women, and uh, you know, I can just see we're going to have pink pink uh, lockboxes, pink bandit signs. We even have a big pink billboard on the side of the expressway, which has been a tremendous boon for our, wow. our traffic. Yeah, it's really been neat. In fact, I'd be glad to show you guys a picture of it. Uh, uh, but it's been really fantastic. And so we also." So uh, breast cancer had, had touched uh, every one of us in a certain way, and yeah. uh, we, we decided at the outset of our company we we're going to make a donation to a breast cancer charity every home that we sold, and and um, and so uh, we've done that subsequently, and that's been really great. And I'll give them a little plug: Little Pink Houses of Hope. Uh, yes, there's a play on words there, but uh, just really a neat, neat charity for $542. They will send a family where the mom is undergoing uh, treatment on a seven-day all-expenses-paid vacation. Of course, there are other donors in there that help make that a reality. But for such a small amount to be able to make a hopefully a small positive difference in, in a family that's going through a lot uh, really was close to our hearts. And so anyway, um, one day uh, Marcy in my office uh, started singing this song. And as I always say, the, the, the story, we, we certainly could have done without her singing. But the essence of the, the Little Pink House's uh, uh, theme song, which was what she was singing, John Cougar Mellencamp back in the 80s there, uh, our, our rendition or our kind of take on the uh, the main chorus was, you know, really talking about the the dream of home ownership and how everybody deserves their own little pink house and ain't that America and and we liked it. It just kind of had a ring to it, and so kind of all those correlating factors led us to pink little pink houses of America. And what's been really surprising and and uh, very humbling and certainly very gratifying is. That has been a brand that we never knew would have so much interest and and stick with people uh, so much. I always uh, say, uh, like I said at the outset, people always laugh at it, but but they don't forget it, which has been been pretty neat. And so what we've done, and I'm sure we we'll get into this here as we go, but we yeah. have uh, different affiliates in different markets, and uh, what we have their company name as Little Pink Houses of Tulsa or Little Pink Houses of Atlanta. And so part of the of America was with the. Uh, the plan to start uh, effectively uh, duplicating ourselves in other markets, and and um, and we've had a lot of fun in doing just that up to this point. Well, your signs—I've seen them on the internet—are very noticeable. You, you know, it, it makes you, from a branding standpoint, you don't have any problems branding yourself with that kind of a pink little houses type of um, stuff, logo, websites, business cards. Yeah, in fact, it's pink everything. You walk in our office, we've got a really neat training room here, and we've got pink signs everywhere. And you walk in the lobby, and there's uh, you know pink uh, pink on the door, pink everywhere you see. It, it probably gets obnoxious, gives you a headache, but it definitely gets the message across, and the and the brand does stick out. And uh, like I said, we, we've had a lot of fun with it. Never anticipated it would be. Uh, I always joke about it, a, a kind of a quirky name, and a, and and certainly a distinct color that you ne- wouldn't necessarily think. Uh, uh, you know, would be for a, a guy like myself, but it's really been a lot of fun. 
and and we're certainly very proud of of, of the brand and and uh, and kind of the the um, you know the merits of remembering it as as people uh, you know don't don't typically forget forget the obnoxious pink that we have everywhere here. Right. So it's littlepinkhousesofamerica.net. That's your main website, right? Well, yeah, .com, .net, .org. We've got okay. them all. They'll, they'll redirect, but yeah, that would be the uh, that would be the website. And so, talk a little bit, Scott. You were telling me before about your history. How did you get into real estate, and how did you find Ron Legrand? Well, so my, my real estate background is is pretty extensive. I was uh, um, my father actually was a uh, book one day. Uh, Mark Haroldson, How to Wake the Financial Genius Inside of You, and I know he's told the story uh, to me countless times, and uh, kind of a kind of a, a neat start, but. Uh, he started when I was about 10 years old. I know we grew up very poor. I don't remember any of that. I had a great upbringing and uh, he learned uh, effectively wholesale kind of low end properties. And um, from there, uh, he got his start and ultimately I ended up cutting my teeth in the inner city and kind of some of the war zones. And, and certainly that molded a lot of our strategy today. But uh, my first uh, house, I tell the story, I'll abbreviate it, but it was I was 14. We actually, I was mowing grass and um, had saved up my cash over the summer. And there was a baby blue Volkswagen Beetle that had flat tires and looked like it hadn't run in years. And it was a, a, right next to a house that I was cutting the grass. And so my uncle, who was kind of a, a kind of a, a grease monkey, liked to work on cars and was very handy. One day said, you know, you should go ask if you could buy that thing. I bet uh, he'd give it to you for next to nothing. And uh, we could get tires pumped up, change the oil, get it cleaned up and, you know, maybe sell it for a profit. And so uh, I did that. Went up, knocked on the door. You know, actually, in my recollection, the guy was probably eight feet tall. Of course, I'm you know 14 at the time, and uh, he looked down at me like, "Who is this young guy asking for the car? Can't even drive yet." And so uh, it was kind of funny his response. But ended up selling it to me for $400. My uncle ended up helping me change the oil, pump the tires, gave it a nice bath, jump started the battery, got it running, and ended up selling it. Of course, we went uh, to another neighborhood to sell it and uh, made $1,500 on it. And from that. Uh, went down to a, a tax lien sale and ended up buying a tax lien and, um, you know, kind of a 1010 King Street. I remember it well. It's now a vacant lot. So as you can imagine, it was a, not, not quite a special property back then and certainly doesn't exist today. But uh, that was kind of my, my start. I don't really count that as my, my full time. I, out of high school, started uh, doing deals and then uh, after school ended up going into a full time flipped houses in between uh, college. That's how I paid for it and, and had my, my living expenses. And uh, the rest is kind of history. I've been doing it full-time 21 years and and uh, and here we are. So Nice. Yeah, that's kind of how I got my start. Now talk about how you, 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 you were at a point where you were telling me before where you kind of hit rock bottom. Was that when the yeah. market crashed? Oh yeah, we um, rock bottom would be an understatement, but uh, yeah, we had a, a family business, and uh, I guess that's how you say it. My father's company. I ended up working with him, and and uh, we lost it all. In fact, there's a there's a whole story behind it. I actually enjoy telling it. It's uh, very long and and has a lot of moving parts. But at the end of the day, uh, we hit rock bottom, lost everything, and and uh, you know we thought we were conservative with our loan to value ratios and. Uh, we thought we were smarter than the average bear, and, and turns out uh, we weren't. And we're very humbled, and and uh, certainly learned a lot through that chapter. And uh, it was uh, was certainly uh, certainly an experience that molded me for the rest of my life. And uh, you know, wouldn't wish it on anyone, but certainly was uh, full of lessons and and um, really uh, shaped. 
who I am today. And I don't know what that means. I just know that there were some great lessons that I think are going to serve me well through life. And it was through that downturn that LeGrand found me and, and uh, uh, flew me down for an interview and, and uh, ended up working for him for a handful of years. He's been a, a great influence on my life and uh, learned a lot from him as well and uh, really took from my background with my father's company and kind of the the blueprint, if you will, or the the um, business model, uh, combine that with what I learned through Ron, and and uh, ultimately we started Little Pink Houses of America, and it's really a culmination of uh, my 21 years, and we've always done non-traditional deals. That's always been kind of the uh, essence of my background, and um, I tell people we come from, uh, we did about a lot of volume. In fact, uh, uh, we were doing about 150 deals a year, uh, buying them, fixing them up, uh, buying for cash, a lot of REOs, and certainly did a lot of kind of grassroots level marketing to find motivated sellers and uh, uh, certainly have a, a, a pretty solid corner on the market. We'd buy them for cash, renovate them, and then we would sell them off on what was uh, refer, called in Ohio land installment contracts. And sure. uh, the blueprint was to really work hard to get the buyer uh, not just credit qualified but mortgage ready within a window of time and uh, ultimately get them uh, refinanced at that point uh, and ultimately roll that money back in, take the profit, and go to the next one. And what, it's a great business what model. What was that? Oh gosh, this would have been back in the uh, '90s and 2000s. So, oh wow, uh, yep, okay. yep, yep, long, uh, many moons ago. Uh, at least uh, that's how it feels, like another life. But anyway, mm-hmm. and then post 2008, um, there were some some kind of strategies that were uh, kind of a kind of a take from prior strategies. Nothing that was uh, was was new, but it was applied to effectively over leveraged properties. As everybody knows, the market crashed and a lot of houses were upside down. And so we, there was a strategy that uh, was created called ACTS, uh, A-C-T-S, Assignment of Contracts and Terms. And I had the uh, the good fortune of being the guinea pig in that. And so learned a lot of lessons and kind of a lot of uh, um, what not to do and, and what worked and in particular what <laughs> markets. Um, <laughs> uh, it's amazing how, how you get good from from making a lot of mistakes and, and screwing up a lot of deals. And so well, – can- uh, can I ask you some questions about Axe? Please. Yeah. So what Axe is is basically <clears throat> um, finding a house that is over leveraged and tying it up on a lease option and basically saying, you know, I can get the seller whatever price they want as long as they're willing to wait for it. And so you would set it up on a longer term basis, right? Correct. So if let's say let's use numbers here. Let's say the house is worth two hundred thousand today. And this was uh, you know, mostly widely used back in you know, 2009 through 2000, well, this kind of started in 2010, 2011, I think. Correct. Um, so the house is worth 200 in today, um, but they owed 250 or 300,000. Mm-hmm. You could still tie that as a lease option, but set the option price to be whatever the loan balance is going to be in a longer term horizon, what, five, 10 years, right? That's exactly right. Yeah, we typically would go for 10 year terms. Uh, those were a little bit harder. Uh, that's a long time, obviously, but based on where the uh, the debt was at the time and what the current values were, you know, the sellers didn't really have a lot of other uh, viable options. And so, yeah, we were always going for longer terms, and and whatever the balance of the mortgage was at the time that the financing would take place uh, was ultimately what the price would be. And you would not stay in the middle of these deals, right? You would. That's exactly exactly they, right. They weren't cash flowing deals. They almost in like mortgage case, assignments. What it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah, there were um, we in, in in almost every case we assigned out. Every once in a while, you'll find a, a high debt with a low payment, and uh, if we had the chance to do some cash flow, we would. But for the most part, the template was that we were signing out of everything. And so, 
what's wrong with that? What, well, nothing. What, what happened? Strategy. Well, I Did think the that deals the, go bust on the other side after you well, signed I, it out. Yeah, that's a great question. And so I, I will tell you, uh, um, you know, some of the uh, what I found in, in, in my past with with uh, my experience with my father's company is, is that when you are arbitrarily setting a time frame for somebody uh, in any sort of a lease option, it's uh, almost analogous to throwing spaghetti against the wall. Some some's going to stick and, and some isn't. And um, as we've gone, I've learned that in, in particular markets and uh, maybe demographics that uh, the success rate is much, much higher than in others. And uh, what we have done is really taken uh, that strategy and applied it to the right demographic with kind of the right blueprint. And and I'll take it one step further. And, and I always was a chuckle. We don't use the, the term lease option here. In fact, um, you know, I, I ask people, is there a difference between a lease option and a lease purchase? And and people say, well, there's no difference in those two. It's a play on words. And I say, well, you could argue with me, but uh, my definition or description is a lease option is kind of like a test drive. We're going to take it for a drive for a year or two, and uh, if we like it, we'll move forward with buying it. If we don't like it, then we would have the option certainly to, to lose any monies we've paid in and, and uh, you know move on with our lives. A lease purchase in our world is really a, what we call or consider a structured buying agreement from the outset. So we take a lot of time up front to qualify our buyers. We're looking for someone who has sufficient skin in the game. Uh, we charge a minimum of $10,000 for every uh, deal that we do. So uh, on almost every deal, and there's certainly exceptions to that, but in almost every case, we're making 10 plus and our average currently is about 15000 a deal because the price points we're dealing in are really two hundred to 500000 So we're dealing what we consider executive level lease purchases. And uh, we're going about trying to really get our buyers uh very, very thoroughly vetted up front, sufficient skin in the game, and really looking for a, a, a timely exit strategy where they're going to be able to finance within a uh, kind of a predetermined window of time. And so um, the difference in that strategy versus Axe deals is that we're really setting our buyers up for success from the beginning, uh, wanting them to obviously have a successful transaction, have a good experience with us. That's really important. And uh, ultimately, we want them to get that loan. And so we're taking the time up front and vetting them accordingly. Uh, and the, the, the kind of the rub with the Axe program is, again, long-term leases. Uh, you would typically get a decent assignment fee, but it was never anything that was tremendous. 5000 10000 was very, very um, uh, doable. Getting above that in most cases was, was going to be fairly difficult because it was purely an assignment fee. And, uh, and I do believe that a lot of those uh, probably aren't going to stick over the duration. Some will, some won't. But if there was one maybe flaw with that program, and I think that's probably what it would be, is over the 10-year window, I suspect there's going to be a fair amount of fallout. So they have no incentive to buy it in year two or three because they're still way over leveraged, aren't they? That's, that's exactly right. And, and in some some cases, uh, uh, you know, we would always try to get the seller to consider shorting the note and or bringing the difference to closing if they could. Of course, uh, nobody wants to have a short sale on their, their record or credit, and obviously if they wanted to bring a big check to closing, they probably wouldn't have gone with us in the first place. But um, uh, we did put really a neat little covenant in some of the agreements that, that actually uh, prohibited or precluded the buyer from actually going to finance before a certain window of time. So in some cases, we'd actually look at the seller's amortization table 
kind of find out what the balance of the mortgage would be in 60 months. Of course, we had no idea whether the market would be corrected by then or not. But if uh, that number was somewhat palatable for uh, the seller and the buyer, we would put covenant says that you can't go get a bank loan before five years. And uh, and that would protect the seller, at least to some degree, from having to pursue something prior to the five years, whether we're shorting the order, bringing cash to closing. And um, But at the end of the day, again, longer term was always there their preference and uh, because the fact that, you know, at some point within two, three years probably wouldn't have made much difference to where the debt and value was at that time. Yeah. So that's pretty phenomenal, though. I like what you're doing because you're focusing on nicer, higher end homes. And there's a lot of advantages to that, right? I mean, you're going to get better buyers with those homes. Mm -hmm. You're going to get higher assignment fees with those homes. And many times um, just overall things are less likely to go bad because the tenant buyer has more skin in the game. They're more likely to actually want to buy that house and buy it in the future. Um, mm. And so you've found probably through experience that doing lease options on lower end homes is not the best thing always, right? Yeah, I think so. I, th I think that you certainly, uh, there's a, uh, some real estate, there's just no better better business out there. I mean, I, I learned that a long time ago. And in fact, we had a uh, someone who was presenting a multi-level marketing opportunity the other day. And I was certainly uh, thankful for the opportunity to listen, but I learned a long time ago that uh, nothing is going to supersede the amount of money you can make in real estate. And so I've, I've kind of kind of stayed laser focused on that. But Scott, you're too nice. <laughs> you're saying you were <laughs> thankful for the opportunity to sit through a network marketing presentation? Really? I'm trying to be politically correct over here. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I thank the first time. Actually, it's a, a guy you'd probably know. Actually, I won't mention his name, but he's a real well-known uh, speaker and, and trainer. Been doing it for a long time, and kind of a neat niche. But but uh, oh. uh, trying trying to be polite. I'm, I'm, I'm coloring between the lines. Oh here, man, let's talk <laughs> afterwards. There you go. It wasn't so, diabetic test strips, right? It wasn't the test strips. It wasn't the test strips. I was waiting for the test strips, but it wasn't that. It wasn't that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. All right. So um, why you know why lease options? Scott, why not regular wholesaling? Why do you like the more creative deals? Aren't they harder to do? You know what? That's a it's a great question, and 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 uh, and I would tell you that there's probably some merit to that. I, I suspect that in uh, I've never been a wholesaler. Number one, I've certainly wholesaled my share deals. I've I've uh, and I've made uh, some pretty significant hits uh, uh, on wholesaling. But on an average, you're probably walking with you know two to five grand. And of course, there's exceptions to that rule. And and uh, but for the most part, you're in, you're out. Obviously, dealing primarily with investors, and you know, good, bad, or indifferent. Uh, you know, you're that's kind of the the, the a lot of people that make their living that way. I've just always felt like you've left a lot of money on the table, and and I don't uh, uh, discount that for a lot of people. It's a great business for me. I've always wanted to go for the longer dollar. In our world, dealing with the demographic we are pinpointing, which is again typically 200 to 500, uh, we we require a five to 10 percent down payment up front. Um, and it's actually uh, would be a, technically a non-refundable option deposit. Uh, we do assign out in some cases, but in what we do kind of as a quick blueprint, we'll negotiate the seller to what we think is a uh, fair price, and obviously they'll agree. We're dealing with a lot of uh, retail-based sellers. There's still motivation. We do a lot of expired listings and things of that nature, but we'll negotiate them to a certain price point, and then we will tack on a, a ten to $15,000 fee on top, pending the market uh, will support that value. The sellers that we work with will be able to make up some of the price through cash flow over the course of the lease 
term. And so um, because we're requiring 5 to 10%, we in some cases will share that if it's a larger down payment or deposit with the seller. But in most cases, we're able to make on an average 10000 to 15000 per deal. And so um, you mentioned better buyers typically. Uh, what I found very counterintuitive but uh, very true uh, as a whole, when you're dealing with savvier buyers and sellers, in many cases, it's a lot easier. They, they get it. They understand the math. They understand the economic benefits of waiting a predetermined period of time to get cashed out, how we can show them they can save a lot of money and ultimately generate a lot more maximizing the sale of their home, uh, even if it's for a 12-month or less window. So um, surprisingly, uh, we find it easier to deal with those folks. So definitely a few moving parts, and, and that's part of the system we have. But uh, as a whole, I find it uh, a fairly simple process that we undertake. And again, the the reward or the payoff for dealing with that that demographic is you're going to get a larger upfront deposit and uh, ultimately a, a you know a, a better margin as a whole. So let's talk about the process a little bit in more detail. Um, you you go out and you you do direct response marketing. You do marketing for sellers, basically, right? We, we do. In okay. fact, um, yeah. So we have parallel tracks of our business always going. We're always marketing for buyers and, and always marketing for sellers. And uh, of course, I suspect that's any real estate business and maybe every business as a whole. But uh, uh, I would say something that was very interesting. We've um, we were just in Atlanta uh, last weekend and we've done a few speaking engagements for a, a, a particular gentleman who owns a couple of these uh, RIAs uh, around the country. And his introduction really caught me and I never looked at it this way. But he said, everybody in this room here does all of their marketing for sellers. Everybody here is spending their dollars as a whole for the most part marketing for, you know, we buy houses and, you know, able to buy cash and close quickly, all that good stuff. And he says, these guys here come in, all of their marketing is geared towards buyers. So well, I, th- I found that very interesting. I never looked at it that way, but but that is the reality. So we have uh, no issues finding sellers. We have no issues putting sellers under contract, and I certainly don't mean to make light of that. We've got a very, very defined script, and certainly we've had a lot of practice. So to be fair, uh, that portion of our of our business model is the easiest one. The hardest one for us is really not finding a buyer. It's finding the right buyer. So uh, we get calls uh, like crazy because the, in this market and, frankly, in any market, there's always going to be a segment of the population that can afford a down payment, can afford a mortgage, but for a multitude of reasons might not be able to walk into the bank today and qualify for traditional financing and that's really the demographic we're going after so there's plenty of people out there fitting that mold but we're looking for the ones that have a sizable down payment that understand what our platform is for understand that this is really a stepping stone to their permanent financing and uh, we can work with larger windows of time if someone needs you know three or four or five years we've done those deals but for the most part we're trying to get them uh, you know mortgage ready within a 6 12 18 month window so um, that's really the hardest part of what we do every day is, is trying to find the right buyer to fit that criteria so you do marketing for sellers and you do marketing for buyers the marketing for sellers that you do is a direct mail Yes. Pink billboards? Billboard, yep. Uh, we do have um, uh, a postcard mailer that we're, uh, we use for expireds. Been very effective. In fact, um, very effective. In the past couple of weeks, we've put together, oh gosh, I know that uh, there's there's a, a handful. In fact, we've got, uh, I think, four contracts are putting together today. Now, to be fair, we've been working them, but uh, we've got four deals coming in today, and, and all of those are directly from the expired listing. So that's been a really, really good demographic for us. And now, hey, If I can ask about your postcard, is it – and what have you found in your experience when you're marketing for sellers? Do you – is your message more generic, like, hey, do you want to buy – do you want to sell your house? Or, I want to buy your house, or is your message more – 
do you want to sell your house on a lease purchase? Do you want to do a rent to own? Yeah. So it's uh, really more of the latter. I think that we, we highlight, I think the biggest benefit for sellers working with us is that uh, we're able to really maximize the gain on their sale. So there's no commissions or fees when they work with us. We recognize the primary portion of what we get paid from the buyer. We always ask the seller for the first payment. Uh, so the buyer would pay us the first payment and then any subsequent payments would be made directly to the seller. Uh, but we're able to save the uh, commission, uh, closing costs, and and uh, ultimately uh, any sort of an offer. We typically can bring them a pretty fair market price. And of course, payments that are made typically will aggregate on top of the price that we've uh, agreed to give them. And uh, there's a couple of different ways that we can slice and dice that. But at the end of the day, the premise of the postcard is that um, it costs an average seller about between 11 and 14 percent. Uh, depending on a couple factors to sell their home, and most sellers don't consider that. On a three hundred thousand dollar home, you're looking at thirty three to forty five thousand, somewhere in that range for a typical cost to sell. And, uh, and of course, that includes a uh, couple different factors. One of which would be even a single party commission. If an agent brings a buyer to the table, you typically will pay them a three percent fee and other other uh, costs that would be associated with that. So we're highlighting the economic benefits and the fact that there's a lot of folks out there that can afford a mortgage, uh, can afford a down payment, but can't get qualified today. And we really highlight to the sellers that that's the demographic that we target and that, uh, uh, frankly, we're just looking for them to consider this as a potential exit strategy, a potential option to look at. And um, if they're interested, we'll call them, give them some more information. And ultimately, uh, um, that kind of seems to pick their interest. And again, dealing with an expired demographic, you've got someone who is has listed at X price, almost certainly dropped it once, if not twice, through the course of a six-month term. And uh, now they're either deflated or really motivated, one of the two. And uh, here we come in and say we can get you, you know, effectively a, a retail a fair market price payments on top of that that typically don't count towards uh, the balance that is owed to you. So those payments just become additional cash flow and and the buyer really pays our fee. And so uh, I can tell you it's only three or four out of every 10 sellers that we work with that this is a potential option for. Many just have to sell and move on and we understand that. But the three or four out of 10 are the ones that we're looking for. And, and it's really the economic benefits to them that, that will pick their interest the most. Okay. And, um, I'm writing some notes down here. When you get nice houses, it's easy to get the buyers, right? I mean, it really is. In fact, by virtue of the areas we're in, we're, we're, you know, good schools, good areas, uh, great neighborhoods, of course. Uh, in fact, we get a lot of, uh, a lot is probably not an accurate statement of just traditional buyers that are looking for uh, the, uh, uh, you know, a nice place in a nice area. So, yeah, it is the buyers and, and the interest level is, has never been an issue, never been an issue at all. Um. Okay, so can you talk a little bit about how you're doing these deals? Um, you're getting them under contract to lease purchase. And, and, and can I ask you, too, about licensing? Are you a licensed realtor? Do you have licensed realtors that work with you? Sure. Great question. So we have a broker on our staff. He's actually vice president of our company. Um, he's effectively more credibility than anything. And not that we need it, but uh, we just found early on, there's just a great guy that uh, I've worked closely with for years. And, and it just kind of made sense at the time. We do have a licensed agent in-house, but none of our transactions as we sit here are, are listed transactions. So licensing is always a concern. Uh, and what we did at the very beginning is I actually retained uh, one law firm. We spent literally the better part of three weeks uh, off and on uh, almost every day really custom making and, and uh, devising uh, a contract and document set that 
really governs what we do. And uh, I'm not at liberty to really tell you the mechanism we use, but we're able to gain effectively uh, ownership in every home that allows us to be a part owner and then sell by owner, uh, ultimately uh, eliminating the licensing concern. And that was a really big deal. It's a great strategy. It's a great business, but obviously we want to operate within the, the confines of the, the letter of the law. So, uh, so we do have an agreement that does allow us to do what we do without having a license requirement. Um, and again, we do have a broker risk if we ever needed to pull him in and, and we have an agent in an office. So we put a, a, the seller under a contract. We have kind of a preliminary set of terms. There's really only four factors that go into every offer that we work with. You obviously have the price, you have the upfront deposit amount, your monthly payment amount, and of course the term that the buyer is going to be looking for. So uh, once we have the contract, we have obviously our marketing template. We uh, hire a professional photographer. We learned a long time ago it's uh, important to take really good pictures, especially the market that we're in. Um, for 100 bucks, you can get a good photographer to go in there and take some really good shots. Uh, we have a nice website, at least we think it is. Uh, yeah, to it market is. Out. Thank, thank you. We actually just relaunched a, a new website that uh, we have uh, several partners that we're working with. And, and if we get to that, I'll, I'll tell you more about that. But we kind of going through a beta test and working out some kinks there. But at the end of the day, we want to have a presentable uh, home. We know that most folks are effectively buying from their living room. They want to make sure that they are uh, like the home and can really get a feel for it before they, they get in the car and, and go see it. So have several little tidbits that we market. Uh, we've really figured out a way to, to, to dominate Craigslist. Uh, not rocket science and surprising though, even with the demographic we target, that's really been a, a very uh, effective uh, marketing means for us. And, you know, I don't know who this Craig guy is, but we owe him a big thank you. So uh, we yeah. use his service quite a bit. But um, uh, we do several things, make the phone ring. Billboard has been just phenomenal for us, which has kind of been a pleasant surprise. And we've run TV commercials, we've done radio spots, and we, we haven't been afraid to try. We're doing a lot of Google pay-per-click right now. Uh, that's actually been surprisingly effective. Uh, and for not that tremendous of a cost, um, we've actually tripled our budget over the past month or two. And you're still only paying maybe 30 bucks a day, 40 bucks a day. And the traffic we get from that is really tremendous. Mainly so, for buyers, right? That's just for buyers. That's just for, for buyers. buyers. So, yeah. And, what are you uh, paying a lead? Do you know what you're paying per conversion? Yeah, you know, it's a great question, and I would tell you that we're. Uh, I'm going to be probably guessing, but we're about 150 dollars somewhere in that range for an actual okay. lead. And and uh, and I would tell you that I say that with a. Not 100% confidence in that number, so uh, sure, that's a great I question. You. I probably probably should know that that answer, but uh, um, but that was the last that we had kind of uh, that we had kind of concluded. But that was probably oh gosh, probably three or four months ago that we really looked closely at that. Um, um, so we are getting good traffic, but again, we're really looking for that that particular buyer. And so um, when we find a buyer. Um, I think what really separates us from from other similar companies is we really have a thorough due diligence undertaking. So we obviously will show them the home after we qualify them on the phone. Uh, we do require a deposit with every offer, and I, I teach people that all the time. Don't start negotiating until you have a deposit. It's a fully refundable deposit, but you need to have some sort of good faith binder. And it's amazing how many people will start to negotiate without putting money down. And uh, you can get uh, certainly a lot of time wasted if you're not careful there. But once we have a deposit, we like the buyer. The first thing we do is. We'll send them to a third party. Prior to the third party talking to them, uh, they are putting uh, two years tax returns, uh, 30 days pay stubs, 30 days bank statements, any other financial criteria that would be relevant to their financing. So we're effectively qualifying them just like a traditional underwriter would look at any traditional borrower with the full understanding that they're likely not going to qualify today. Um, we actually pay almost $250 for a one-hour phone call with a national lender 
And the purpose of that phone call is not only to find out why they are where they are, but more importantly, what their next steps and certainly their time frame is going to be to successfully finance. And so um, from that phone call, we have a custom-made blueprint made for every buyer. We sit down after that phone call takes place and we interview them in our office and we're big believers in education. We want to take the time to meet with them up front, let them know what's expected of them. Uh, you know, I always tell them the good, the bad, the ugly. We want to paint both sides of the coin. It's a great way to buy a home. We protect their investment. We have record interest in every home we work with and uh, we really want to set everybody up for success. We're big believers in having kind of a win-win-win philosophy here and we do everything we can to set them up for success. And so we put together a custom blueprint for every buyer we work with and that is really predicated on what their time frame is for financing and the exact steps they need to take to get to that point. And uh, um, from that meeting, if everything looks good, we'll sit down with the seller, share with them our offer to them. Ultimately, uh, we do allow them in most cases to approve the deal that we're working with. And uh, from there, we actually require every buyer we work with to go into a mortgage readiness program. So the lender that is ultimately going to be writing the loan at the end of the term starts working with them from day one, uh, forces them into this program. We get auto-generated reports every month to see where our buyers are. And ultimately, we're looking to get them financed as soon as possible. And again, we'll tailor make every time frame to their specific window. In fact, my, my uh, pad example, and it's been probably two years at this point since this transaction took place, but it just highlights kind of the demographic we're working with. We sold a home to a Wells Fargo executive, not the guy that uh, you, takes your check in line uh, at the teller, but he was one of the vice presidents, one of the countless vice presidents, and uh, moved down here from Minnesota uh, to take a job. At the time, uh, values in Minnesota had not really corrected themselves, so he ended up having to do a short sale on his house. Uh, at that time, it was a three-year window of seasoning before he could uh, borrow again. And when he came to us, uh, had 25000 to put down. Uh, monthly payment was, I think, in the $2,800 a month range. Debt to income was fine. Credit overall was actually good, aside from the short sale. He only needed nine months in his window of seasoning before he would be uh, mortgage ready and credit qualified. And so we end up giving him a nine month term and we wrap our terms around their ability to walk into the bank. Uh, I'll add that we always will include what we call a good faith extension that in case life throws you a curveball, we always want to yeah. give you a backstop and in, in, in case uh, something happens. So we typically will throw in a three or six month window of extension in good faith if you can't get your financing. Uh, as long as you can show us that you've tried to finance and you've been declined, we're going to give that to you with no extra cost, no additional fees or uh, up, uh, or deposits. And ultimately, uh, I want to see you get to the closing table. But that's an example of not only the caliber or clientele that we're working with, but also the way that we really will wrap around uh, the lease purchase agreement right around their uh, window for financing. So does that make sense? I talk really fast sometimes. I catch myself. No, that's good. That's good. Um, so just bottom line, when you find a seller that says, yeah, I want to do a lease purchase on my house, you give them a contract and you become a principal in that contract basically, right? Yes, sir. So you're the tenant buyer at first. Yes. Okay? Yes. And then you have the right then to turn around and sublease that out to advertise it to somebody else. Yes. And you, you're advertising it as the landlord. Basically, you're turning around yes. and you're advertising it as a landlord. Yep. You find a good tenant buyer that you feel has a realistic chance of getting a mortgage in six to 12 months, um, maybe one to two years, mm -hmm. and you know they can afford the house. You do the background check on them, and then basically you will assign or sell your contract to them. Is that right? That's exactly right. Yep. And then you're out of the deal. You're done. Out. You're done. 
Yeah, in most cases, we're done. There are exceptions where we may have some cash flow in the middle. We may have some equity at the back when they finance out. But in most cases, we will assign out and be done with it. Um, I'll just add as a caveat that we always stand behind them and and not in a respect that we pay for them or if someone defaults that we're responsible because we make that crystal clear that we are not. But we always tell both parties if there's ever an issue, we obviously want to be the first phone call. You know, we want to see our folks succeed. We want to set them up the right way. And if something happens, we certainly want to be made aware. But uh, from a legal and technical uh, logistical standpoint, we are out of the deal in, in almost every case at the time that we consummate the deal with the buyer. And so you use uh, an attorney to close your deals, right? 100% of the time. Is this um, the same attorney out in Ohio? Uh, it's I not. Use? What's the difference? I don't think we, yeah, we have a local guy. In fact, um, nice. nope, uh, we have a local guy. In fact, he's, uh, uh, he comes to our office for closings, which is really nice because uh, we don't have to leave our desk. So he'll come good, here. Good. And, and, uh, but yeah, we have our, our buyers will pay for that. We charge a $500 closing fee and uh, the buyers pay for it. And, and I always tell people, always use an attorney. They'll prepare the docs and actually represent the closing. It's a level of comfort that everybody uh, has when you have a lawyer handling it. But uh, without exception, we use an attorney every time. Good. And do you use an escrow company to collect the payments, to uh, um, collect the rents and pay the mortgage? It's a great question. We do. So we, um, uh, first of all, we'll take the good faith binder up front. Uh, we actually have every one of our buyers wire their closing proceeds directly to our attorney's trust account. So we tell them up front, we don't touch the money. The attorney will disperse accordingly at closing. And we use a third party escrow servicing company that will debit the buyer's account every month. They will direct deposit to the underlying mortgage first eliminating equity skimming and any additional cash flow uh, will either go into our account or into the seller's account subsequent to that. So then the, one of the problems that I've had in the past would be a tenant buyer getting their deposit, their, their, their option deposit that they made at the beginning, getting that applied towards their future down payment. Mm-hmm. Um, do you work with lenders who understand this process? and Do you see any problems with that on, on your end? It's a great question. So what we do is, and I learned this through the AXE program, uh, in fact, I'll, I'll kind of give you my sarcastic example. And uh, so we'd have a house that was 300000 and you know, we have a buyer that comes up and says, so I've got uh, $20,000 to put down. Okay, great. So when I go to the bank to get a mortgage, I'll owe two eighty. dollars And you say, well, no, it's just an assignment fee. So that's money for me to basically give you my contract that I was so astute in negotiating. And I say, okay, so 20000 So, okay, well, I'll still owe three hundred, but at least when I go to the bank, I'll get credit for that money as my down payment, right? No, it's just an assignment fee. So you still owe three hundred, and you have to come up with a brand new down payment. And yeah. He says, okay, great. Where do I sign, right? Well, I'm, uh, I'm being sarcastic, right, of course. Right. You'll get a lot of fives. You'll get a, you'll get some tens. With, with Ron, I did one that was even twenty five thousand as an assignment fee. So you can get some high ones, but as a whole, I make an analogous to wholesaling. You're probably going to get fives and maybe a little bit more here and there. What we realized is that if we can negotiate with the seller up front. Um, 10 out of 10 sellers list the home high with the intent to take an offer. In most cases, they're listing it at what market value would be. They understand they're probably going to take an offer. We use an average rule of thumb of 95% of the values where most houses get accepted. And I understand there's markets where they get accepted higher and quicker and all that good stuff. But as a whole, that's a pretty average rule of thumb. We don't get a lot of pushback on that. So we're able to negotiate them up front um, understand that we're going to make up any sort of reduced price with monthly payments. So the cash flow they'll generate over the course of the term will aggregate to really make their total uh, much, much more than just the price itself. 
what we do when we can negotiate a good price from the seller, we'll actually increase the price that we take it to market at, 10, 15, sometimes more, $1,000. The money that the buyer puts down comes off of the price and they get 100% credit for it towards their down payment requirements and or closing costs. So uh, it's reflected on the HUD one as a POC or paid outside closing. And we have not had any issues with that because of the fact that it comes off the price and is full, fully credited dollar for dollar. So um, we learned early on, in particular through the X program, that it's a lot easier to get bigger uh, deposits uh, by giving them credit uh, towards it and, of course, credit off of the price. So have not had any major issues with the underwriters. We sometimes have to explain the logistics of it and how it works. But as long as they can verify that the money was put down and that the credit off the price uh, we've had, in fact, we've got three closings, two closings this week, one next week. Those are just financing closings where we aren't uh, recognizing any additional money, but the buyers that we've put into those homes within the first 12 months are in the bank right now for, for getting loans. And we verify the wire transfer and the funds and all that good stuff and have not had any issues because of that. Well, and I think one of the major reasons why you're not having issues with that money getting credited towards our future down payment is you're using this third-party escrow company, right? So the check Absolutely. that that tenant buyer makes is not out to Little Houses of America, right? It's to the escrow company. Am I correct? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And that's logistical, and that's a very, very good point. And you're right. And, and not only does the escrow servicing company uh, have kind of record of it, but even the monthly payments. Uh, many times underwriters would like to uh, just see as a reference point the pay history. And when you have it kind of automatically debited, number one, it, it uh, eliminates the, the you know, quote-unquote checks in the mail scenario. Yeah. And uh, it also can provide an electronic uh, printout of the pay history. And we found that to be uh, uh, advantageous in both respects. And, yeah, there's definitely a kind of a, a trail, if you will, or a kind of a certain logistical uh, pattern that we follow to eliminate that concern. And you hit the nail on the head, Joe. Well, good, good. So I got a few more questions here. And, Alex, I know I'm hogging all the questions. but No, I'm sitting here listening. It's, it's good. It, I mean, this is, this is the lease option business run in an extremely professional manner. Exactly. I mean, this, yeah. this is it. <laughs> And that's that's the key to Scott's success. He treats it like a business. He's got an attorney that does his deals. He uses an escrow company. He's got a broker on staff. He's got his bases covered. I love it. Um, now, Scott, I've I've gotten into I've dipped my toes in the hot water a little bit in the past, and my clients have gotten actually threatening letters from the real estate commissions. When you start advertising a home finders program, or you start advertising. You get the buyers first, and then you go find a house for them. That sounds an awful lot like brokering. Sure. So yeah. what's the right way to do it without getting in trouble with the real estate commission? You know what I'm saying? Sure. Right. Oh, absolutely, 100%. Well, that was the first thing that I had uh, uh, met with my attorneys about and I, uh, when we first started the company and wanted to create a custom set of documents is that, you know, look, it's a great strategy. It, it is a platform for a large majority of our population that wants to buy a home but can't for a multitude of reasons. You know, we just want to make sure that we are uh, operating within the letter of the law. And so, obviously, in Florida in particular, by the way, there's a very ambiguous statute that Literally, uh, in fact, it, it makes me chuckle every time I say it. In one sentence, it basically says you don't need a license to work with options. And on the, in the same sentence, it says you do. And so, um, of course, I've, I've been told that a lot of statutes seem to seem to read that way. But that was number one for me. There were several, several metrics and several covenants that I wanted to make sure were contained in our agreements. We've got just some of the 
frankly, the best agreements we've ever seen. Uh, and I can tell you why. We've condensed our initial agreement with our seller to one page. And it is so simple and so easy. And we give them the right to cancel. I mean, there's just some really cool things in there. It makes it easier for the seller to sign. But the number one issue that was at hand was I didn't want to have any concerns with the licensing. Uh, and of course, my lawyer said, well, we'll go get a license. And well, you know, it wasn't just something I wanted to do. And Joe, you and I talked off this podcast prior that I know you were thinking of it or considering it or may, may have done so already. But what we did is we found a mechanism in Florida that is fairly universal around the country. I know that North Carolina and Texas, uh, it is not universal, but it's a mechanism that we use that gives us effectively what's considered or called equitable title, equitable interest. And so um, it is something that we use that's proprietary. I don't typically share it openly, um, but uh, as far as what we use and how we secure our interest, by virtue of the mechanism, by the agreement we have, it gives us part ownership in the home. And um, that is the actual legal um, layman's way to say it. Um, so we become effectively a partner, if you will, or a part owner of the home, and that allows us to then sell it by owner. I'll also tell you, uh, after we drafted the documents, I retained a second law firm. And uh, that law firm, the first law firm didn't know about the second, and I brought the docs to them. I said, here, here they are. Here's our business model. Spent two and a half hours and uh, said, you know, sue me, defend me. Where are the kinks in the armor here, so to speak? And he called me back about two weeks later. We made several changes. From there, um, we picked up the phone with our broker and we called FREC, uh, the Florida Real Estate Commission. And we said, this is who we are. This is what we're doing. These are the documents we're using. These are the mechanisms we have in place. And, you know, this is our business model. Uh, and we went through everything with them and, and they, they approved it. So I have a, uh, a student I work with out of um, Mississippi. And he had gotten some some of those same phone calls you were mentioning. And I said, you know, your best bet is to call the Mississippi Real Estate Commission and, and just be proactive with it. What we're doing is a great business and it's a great strategy. It, it, it is if you do it the right way. And we always say if you do it with integrity and preeminence and you're really trying to uh, set people up for success. And yes, you're making a profit. But at the end of the day, you know, your intentions are what they are. Um, you know, just take it head on and ask them, you know, what are the. The variables here. What do you? What would you like us to change and tweak, et cetera, et cetera? So, we took it head on, made sure that we didn't have any issues going in, and and because of it, we haven't had any phone calls. Now, that's not to say that at some point someone won't pick up the phone and give us a call and say, "How you doing? What you doing?" And can we uh, take a closer look? Of course, we'd be glad to show them. We we have everything documented, and um, and so um, you know we want to make sure that we took it head on and and cleared it with the powers that be, and we have done that. And every state that we go to, and we're currently in a handful of markets right now uh, duplicating our business model. Uh, we've done the exact same thing. We've consulted local attorneys, uh, ran by them the document set that we use, the mechanisms we use to secure the interest, and um, in some cases have even contacted the state uh, real estate commission just to share with them as well in a proactive manner. So I've always believed if you're not doing anything wrong or you know trying to do something right, if you just come right out and hit it head on, you typically will eliminate those concerns in, in a proactive fashion versus reactive. Excellent. Can you talk a little bit, uh, Scott, about how your team operates? You have what do the people on your team in your office, and what do they? Uh, yeah, do? great question, great question. So, in, in any market that we open up with, as well with our affiliate partners, we really say that you've get, it helps to have a team. There's just no question. So, we have one person in particular, and we've added to them. Now we actually have three people, but we always have a designated person that their job is really to put contracts together on the front end with sellers. So, their job every day is to uh, contact and work with sellers. We have a pipeline, just like any other sales business. We have deals that we're working. Some come on the first call. Some take five calls. Some take more. 
but we're always constantly filling that pipeline. We have someone that uh, works with all of our buyers. And uh, so we have someone that's the same premise. We have a lot of calls that come in. Our buyers list is ridiculous. It's not fabricated. We have about 4,200 people on our buyers list, but I don't share that with most people because it sounds inflated. But with our billboard, we get like six to 10 people every single day and signing up for our website. The reality is probably only 5% of that list are really qualified or bona fide buyers. So, um, but we have someone that works with our buyers full-time and we have a full-time marketing position. Uh, we found that obviously, you know, no matter what business or line of business you're in, you're really in the marketing business. You just happen to have a specific uh, business that you're marketing for. And so those are kind of the three primary roles we've since added to our team. We've got about 11 people here now and certainly growing. And I tell people growth just means bigger payroll, but, uh, but we've, we've added to it. And, and so that's been, um, uh, those are the kind of the, the, the primary components of, of, of what we do here. And, and I'll just add one tidbit because this is something I've, I've learned, I learned a long time ago and it continues to be very applicable. Uh, my favorite business book, and I, it sounds like I read a bunch of books. I don't, but my favorite business book is a book called Good to Great and came out about 15 years ago. And there's an example they use in there that your team is a, is a bus and you're the bus driver. And uh, before you know which way the bus can go, you need to make sure you have the right people on the bus and the wrong people off the bus. And that sounds pretty straightforward, but the metric that has been so applicable is what he says next. The key is making sure you have the right people in the right seats on the bus. Then you can decide what direction the bus should go. And I share that only because uh, when we first started, we had all of our focus was on cultivating seller contracts. And so I had someone that was making calls to sellers, working with sellers and did a pretty good job. But uh, never seemed to really flourish. The minute I moved her to working with buyers, she really found her home and she just really exploded. And so you can have great people on your team, uh, but they may be in the wrong seat on the bus. And at the end of the day, we always are really cognizant of if you have a, a good person, they've got a good work ethic, good morals and values, and seem to not have their particular niche or not really seem to be uh, finding their full potential, they may be in the wrong seat on the bus. And so we, we definitely have had some good people that we've moved around because of that metric. And, and we found uh, that they seem to be some will fit in better positions than others. So uh, but the three primaries, we always have a, an acquisitionist. We always have someone that works with our buyers and, and having a marketing person has been really key for us. OK, hey, I, I was just looking at your uh, site here. Um, you're all over the country. Or am I wrong? Are you got offices yeah. all over in uh, like uh, Oklahoma and you got them in Florida and Ohio, we, Illinois, Arizona, Washington? We've got some. We are um, uh, pro- uh, appreciate that. It probably makes it look bigger than we really are. But we have uh, we've got affiliates in about 19 different markets right now. What we wow. do is we, we have a um, just kind of a. And I don't make light of it. I always tell people we work hard and, and uh, we expect our partners to work hard as well. But um, we have kind of a cookie cutter template here. We've got a great uh, system, uh, great systems in place, great documents. Um, and, and again, it's not known said it was easy. If it was easy, everyone would do it. But um, but we take our kind of our carbon copy cookie cutter and uh, we'll open up in other markets. And, and we uh, are it's our goal, frankly, to be in 300 markets over the next five years. And it's lofty. It's um, certainly going to take a lot of work to get there. But we think we've got the right systems. We think we've got the right infrastructure to, to handle that. And and that is our big picture goal. We, we've I've always learned it's been 21 years and that I've been doing this full time uh, back in 2004. 
before, I actually had lunch with a an attorney who had a specialization in franchising, and this is not franchising, so let me be very clear about that. Um, but uh, he said uh, over a couple hour meeting, uh, and it was all set up ahead of time. He said, you know, not only do I see the potential for a business that can be duplicated, but you're helping Middle America achieve home ownership in a non traditional way, and I really see a lot of merit in that. And that always stuck with me. Here it is, uh, 12 years later, uh, and we're starting to kind of uh, realize that dream of being able to spread this around uh, to different markets. Um, good markets, bad markets, there's always going to be a segment of the population that can afford to buy a home but can't qualify today for financing for whatever reason. And what we're looking to do is really provide that, that mid ground, that platform, bridge, or stepping stone to their permanent financing. And so, uh, we'd like to think that we can make a small difference out there and in a positive way, and, and that's certainly what we're trying to do. Very good, Scott. And if people wanted to get more information about your coaching program, uh, maybe do what you do in another city, where can they go? Sure, sure. So uh, littlepinkhouseofamerica.com or .net is going to be our primary website. Uh, we also, we've coined kind of our, our blueprint, ABLE, um, A-B-L-E. We call it, uh, it's an acronym for Assembling Buyer Lease Estates, which is a, another mechanism that we will use in, in some instances. And uh, it's similar to that, but the acronym is really more of an acronym. Uh, but it's ablementoring.com, ablementoring.com. They can get more information on some of our programs, including the affiliate program and, um, you know, see if it's a good fit for them, good fit for us. But um, they're certainly able to get a hold of us through either of those websites. Very good, very good. Alex, do you have any other questions for Scott? No, it's uh, pretty amazing what he's got going on. Um, probably similar to, uh, do, you, do you know Keith and Shannon French? Oh, yeah, good friends. You know, I know the names. I don't know if I know them personally, but I've I heard mean, of them. They've got it. They've got, you know, um, what you've got sounds uh, pretty amazing, but it seems like uh, very similar to uh, what they're doing. Gotcha. Yeah, they are... Okay. They're doing a lot of lease options in the um, Baltimore area while they l- live in Louisiana. You know, I just heard I just heard of this weekend. We were up in Atlanta doing a three day training, and someone had mentioned that same thing. So that that's how I know the name. Yeah, and that's what I love about this business. You know, even I've done lease options from Prague in the United States. I've done them um, here in my own backyard without ever going to see the house, and so. You can build up systems, and one thing I like about what you're doing, Scott, is you've built this as a business. You've taken it very seriously, and you've got a really, really good system down, and I like it. I love it a lot, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad we got the chance to interview you, and I appreciate you taking the time. Again, guys, littlepinkhousesofamerica.com is Scott's website. If you want more information about his mentoring, go to ablementoring.com, A-B-L-E, mentoring.com. Hey, Scott. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Hey guys. Thanks for having me. It's uh, certainly been a great call. Good, guys. Go to Real Estate Investing Mastery to get the show notes, to get these links, and uh, maybe even a transcript. Not sure if we're still going to keep on doing that or not, but maybe we will. Who knows? All right. <laughs> Take care, guys. See you later. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Scott. Right. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye.